0: Welcome to Radio Curious, I'm Barry Vogel. Imagine Daria, a 12-year-old girl in a remote village of Afghanistan. Her father forces her to marry a drug lord as part payment for an opium drug trade. Her father is not home and she is about to be taken from her family. Desperately, her hands trembling, she implores you, a complete stranger, Please, don't let him take me. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Fariba Nawa, author of Opium Nation, Child Brides, Drug Lords, and One Woman's Journey Through Afghanistan. Fariba Nawa was 10 years old when her family fled Afghanistan shortly before the Soviet invasion in 1979. 18 years later, Fariba Nawa met 12-year-old Daria when she returned to her native Afghanistan as an Afghan-American investigative journalist. Her book tells Daria's story and reveals what the Afghan opium drug trade is doing to her native land in the midst of war. Fariba Nawa and I visited by phone from her home near San Francisco, California. On January twenty third, two 2012, we began with her description of coming to the United States when she was 10 years old and her flight from Afghanistan.
1: I came here when I was 10 years old to the United States, and I started out in the fourth grade. I didn't speak any English, and I, I was brought up in an, an Afghan and a Muslim environment, um, so it was really difficult initially acculturating but it didn't take long for me to learn the language i was fluent in a couple of years and then i rebelled against a lot of the double standards having to do with gender and i still do that our community tends to be very conservative when it comes to women and girls and giving equal rights to both whether it's inside afghanistan or here and i have always tried to fight for equal rights um... i think That was the main issue for me, and with my mother specifically, and then trying to reconcile being Afghan as well as being American. What did that mean? How did it affect me? There were a lot of questions involved with that, and when you're a teenager, you're already uh, going through so many changes. Having to make sense of it all is difficult sometimes.
0: How have you made sense of that, reconciled the differences
1: as you grow older and you develop a more sense of identity, one of the things I did was go back. I mean, one of the, the reasons I went back was to so, sort of become rooted again in, in my childhood memories and, and to understand where I came from and what it meant. It's all how you look at a perspective, and I try to be positive about it, and I think it is a positive thing in the end that you take the best of both worlds and that is your identity. And as a hyphenated American, which more and more of us are nowadays, you're more in tune with the world because you're more aware of two different worlds, or or even more for that matter, if you're coming from a third background. But I was—I I always felt like my one foot was in in the African culture and the other was in American culture, and in many ways they're similar. But the differences now—I see the differences as something that I can learn from rather than be afraid of whereas before when I was a child or when I was a teenager I didn't like it I wanted I wanted to be like the American shows I wanted to be the family and family ties or growing pains because they seem to have such simple lives whereas our life was much more complicated
0: Can you share with us your insight as to the roots from a Western culture perspective, the extreme gender separation and distinct gender roles in Afghanistan?
1: I think it has been exacerbated in the last 30 years because of the wars that have been going on there. When I was growing up there, my parents and the community around us was much more harmonious in terms of gender. The, the, there wasn't as much domestic violence, for example. Things have gotten worse over the years because the society has been emasculated. So we have to keep that in mind. That That is the context we're talking about in Afghanistan. But I think it's also important to remember that we get a lot of news coming out of Afghanistan about violence against women. And it's not the only place that happens, and that happens in the United States as well, that happens in developing countries as well. But Afghanistan is a specific case because of these this ongoing wars. And also, I don't think that it's culturally misogynistic, but I think there are certain traditions and norms that have been perpetuated over the years, which basically adhere to the division of labor. Women are the caretakers, men are the providers. And if there's any kind of rebellion against that, it seems to cause problems. And then education for girls has been a constant struggle for women inside Afghanistan, because more conservative societies or more conservative communities inside Afghanistan think that it's something bad.
0: What is bad about it?
1: They think that girls who go to school will become morally, they will become morally corrupt. That That is the view. Um, and some people think that they will become infidels. Um, often you, religion is used as a way to close the door for girls in every way. It's a wrong view of religion. It's not the, it, it, it's a very misogynistic interpretation of religion, I would say. And it's a successful, it, it is able to keep, Women from moving forward in many ways.
0: So, then comparing this to what you said a few moments ago about how the gender separation has become more strict in the past 30 years, what's the cause? What happened 30 years ago and continued?
1: 1978, there was a communist coup that began the destabilization of Afghanistan and then the subsequent Soviet invasion and the United States' support of the Mujahideen, Afghanistan became a proxy of the Cold War, and the last proxy that basically led to the fall of the Soviet Union. But Afghanistan throughout its history has been a pawn for other empires to fight their battles. It's a buffer zone geographically. It's a landlocked country. So the people of Afghanistan, there has been a period of 40 years of peace under the monarchy of King Zahir, And I think my parents and and grandparents were able to live in that golden era of peace. But outside of that, it has historically been the victim of wars, basically.
0: Both before and after the golden era under King Zahar.
1: Yes. After the golden era, there has been one war after the era. It's starting with the communist coup, then the Soviet invasion, then the Mujahideen civil war after the Soviets' withdrawal, and then the Taliban and the civil war with the Mujahideen and the Taliban, and then the U.S. intervention and NATO war against the Taliban now. So in the last 30 years, there really hasn't been a break for people. In some areas, it's it's more secure than others, but the threat of war is always there.
0: In your book, Opium Nation, Child Brides, Drug Lores, and One Woman's Journey Through Afghanistan, you talk a lot about opium, the current growing of the opium plant. Can you put that into a perspective, a historical perspective, considering that the Silk Road ran through Afghanistan, Alexander the Great was there, Marco Polo was there, and still it's an issue?
1: Yeah, I I think opium has been traded along the silk route um, and used as medicine uh, throughout history. But the first time it was cultivated in Afghanistan, it was during the 13th century under Genghis Khan, when he conquered Afghanistan, or back then it wasn't called Afghanistan. And the cultivation was primarily consumption in contemporary history for Iran, but it was contained. It was a contained problem. It did not run the country. In the 1950s and 60s, the United States and the Soviet Union were competing for Afghanistan's loyalty, and in terms, in through aid projects, through development aid, and the United States picked up an area called the Helmand River Valley. Many of your listeners have probably heard of Helmand Province because that has been the front line in this war, and the Helmand River Valley was a very fertile area where. Crops were grown, crops such as wheat and cotton, and there were engineers, American consultants, sent to this area to evaluate the soil and what kinds of crops could go there because the United States wanted to encourage mass production of crops. But these American engineers said the soil is not compatible to the kind of mass production that the United States wants to encourage. The policymakers did not listen and went ahead with these projects anyway. What ended up happening is it depleted the soil to a point that one of the few crops that can still be grown in that area is poppy. Um, And poppy is a really resilient crop. It's a labor-intensive crop, but it's one that will grow in many parts, um, in many types of soil and and land. And it it can be rain-fed or irrigated, uh, so it's easier to grow than other crops and it's much more lucrative. Um, and then the, the war started in 1978, and the Mujahideen were being supported by the U.S. and the CIA, um, and the United States decided to fund the biggest drug trafficker of all, who was uh, the most radical leader. His name was Gulbatin Hikmatyar. Um, and we knew, the U.S. very well knew that he was a drug trafficker, and they were actually encouraged to to make money uh, to support their war against the Soviet Union. And so th- this, is, this was going on for quite a while. Uh, it took Afghanistan 30 years to become a narco state, which it is now. It, it provides 90% of the world's opiates, um, and that includes heroin. Uh, and it is worth $65 billion dollars worldwide, $4 billion inside Afghanistan. And it's not Afghans reaping the, source, the main source of the money. It's going to mafia, uh, to the international mafia, essentially. Uh, that includes Nigerian, Albanian, Turkish, Russian, uh, Iranian, Pakistani mafias. Even the Afghan kingpins are not making as much money as those outside of the countries because with each border crossing, the prices rise tenfold. Let's say you have a pound of heroin that is about $3,000 inside Afghanistan. By the time that makes it to the U.S., it could likely become $30,000. The prices fluctuate. Um, They vary depending on the situation on the
0: ground. Thus making the opium trade a significant factor in international trade.
1: Exactly. It is a big business. It's really a business, and drugs and war go hand in hand. It's not just in Afghanistan. Uh, many people have seen this happen in Colombia, in Vietnam, in Laos, in Thailand. So, But it, the problem is it's, it, it, it is easy for those at war to turn to the drug trade uh, for a source of revenue, but it's very difficult to get off of it. It's very difficult to wean off of the drug trade. Uh, it'll take another 30 years at least, and that is if the war stops in Afghanistan for it to be able to turn to another economy besides the drug trade. Um, right now, it is it, there are one million addicts inside Afghanistan as a result of this. And this is something very new, the addiction rate.
0: Well, Fariba Nawa author of Opian Nation. I want to ask you more about that, and specifically in relationship to a 12-year-old girl you met on a recent trip to Afghanistan. But first, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Fariba Nawa, author of Opian Nation, Child Brides, Drug Lords, and a One Woman's Journey Through Afghanistan. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Fariba, on your trip, you met a young girl named Darya, and in your book, you have some very poignant points about her. She, she pleads to you out of desperation, and you write, I'm in a male-controlled society that blames women for their unfortunate fate. The laws may protect women, but the majority of the citizens will not. In the eyes of the men and women I meet in villages, girls who set themselves on fire out of desperation are selfish. Women who fight back are shameless, and women who run away are prostitutes." And you're approached by Daria. You write that she's not crying, but she's imploring you, a complete stranger. Her plea and desperation slowly sink in, and you ask, "What can i do
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's it was a it was one of those life changing moments. I went in doing this story as a journalist, as an intellectual, trying to find the answers to a problem. And then at that moment, from that passage that you read, the, the story became personal because I was, now it was my conscience having to deal with someone who asked for help, who was desperately in need of it. She was 12 years old. She was married, bartered to an opium smuggler by her father who could not pay off his opium debt, and she's one of thousands right now. Um, and the man that she was married to, she had never seen him before. Um, he was, he already had a wife and eight kids, and he basically needed a servant in the house.
0: A slave.
1: And essentially, yes, a slave, because she would go to, to another, uh, she was going from Herat, which is a Persian-speaking, um, fairly advanced uh, province on the border of Iran, and then she was going to be taken to Helmand province. And Helmand now is very different than it, what it was 30 years ago, um, and she was going to be taken to a village and basically uh, asked to do housework for the other wife. And obviously she didn't want to go. She also didn't speak the language. She spoke Farsi, and uh, the man she was marrying spoke Pashto. Uh, there was no communication between them at all, other than fear. She was afraid of him. And uh, she, what made her different is the fact that she was fighting back. Many of these girls will just do what they're told, that they accept their fate. But this young girl was feisty. She she had a spirit about her, and I liked that. Uh, we immediately had a rapport, and I think she felt comfortable enough to ask me for help. So really this book is about um, the fact, you know, it's about that relationship that I have with her and my um, soul searching and how I can or can't help her. I go in search of her to Helmand Province, and I try to find her because eventually the husband takes her away and her mother asks me to go find her. And, um, and then this is really the journey, one woman's journey through Afghanistan. Um, and I start to research the rest of the drug trade and become interested in it, partly because of her, because I want to know why this happened, um, how big this drug trade is, who's being affected by it. And the book is the first look at Afghan lives, how are these lives being affected from, from the opium bride to the farmer to the addict? And mostly it's women characters because that's who I had access to. And a lot of men who've written about the issue don't have access to Afghan women because it's not culturally appropriate for them to meet with uh, foreign men. Um, so my relationship to Darya still I, I think about her and I talk about her often.
0: Have you had any communication with her since that uh, fateful conversation when she pled to you for help?
1: Well, I don't want to ruin the end of the book. So there's, that's part of the, the ending of the book is what happens to her and what happens to me.
0: You mentioned in relationship to Daria that she was bartered by her father to pay off his drug debt. Explain how that works.
1: A lot of farmers and middlemen in the drug trade um, initially make a lot of money, and, but, but the way the drug business works, it, it fluctuates vastly. You can make a lot of money very fast, but then go into debt very fast, too. Daria's family had become um, fairly wealthy in their village because her father was a middleman. He would hire couriers um, to, to, to take... Uh, drugs across the border to Iran, and and somehow he fell into debt um, to the southern smugglers. The smugglers in the south and the the farmers in the south provided uh, the the couriers in Herat with their opium to cross the border, and uh, this is where the problem started. And there's a big business between the south and the west. Herat is in the west side, and they. When they fall into debt, these smugglers will accept, first, cash, money back, second, drugs, third, land. And then fourth, if you don't have any of those, they'll take your daughters. Um, And the daughters are made into third or fourth wives, or they are trafficked uh, to become dancers and prostitutes across borders. Whether it's to the UAE or other Gulf countries, or to Pakistan or Iran, um, that's basically how it works. And then instead of paying the money, uh, they pay them with girls. the The problem is if they don't, if they don't give away that girl, the entire family is in danger. The entire family will be killed or threatened, or their house will be put on fire. And um, so it's the the, the girls basically the sacrifice for the greater good. And that was the case for Daria. When I tried to help her out, I was constantly told, well, if we help her, what about the rest of the family? What's going to happen to them? We should let her go.
0: How is that issue reconciled?
1: It isn't reconciled. These fathers are ashamed of what they're doing. They're horrified by it. Um, These communities are dismantled by one of these. This is one of the issues. I mean, the drug trade has, for the most part destroyed parts of Afghanistan, destroyed the, the, the main unit, which is the family. And what keeps Afghans resilient and surviving throughout all these years of war are their families. And something like this breaks up the family. Uh, so these, these fathers and mothers are devastated by it. I don't think they do this easily. Um, I never met Darya's father, but I, could wa- I watched her mother suffer through this every day for six weeks. Um, And I think she still does.
0: Does the United States government's intervention in Afghanistan have any uh, reflection on this situation?
1: I think it has made the drug trade worse in some ways um, because now you have smaller bandits inside the country, who are in charge of it. Previously, when the Taliban were in power, it was legalized. Um, They banned poppy production at some point in 2000, and they did it very successfully, but trafficking and processing was still legal, and that's where the money is. It's not in the farming. Um, The the good thing about the Taliban was that they had a united voice, and they did it through draconian measures. They did it, but they did it. They were able to get a lot done. Um, once the Karzai government came into power, the U.S. made friends with a lot of the drug dealers, whether it was Taliban or it was the former Mujahideen, because the goal was not... But the, goal, the, the primary goal was to fight terrorists, and these drug dealers were informants who would give information about terrorists. Um, and then production went up from... 4,000 in 1999, 4,000 tons to 8,000 tons in 2007. Um, There have been many millions of dollars, billions, spent on counter-narcotics. In some areas of the country it has been successful, uh, but on most areas it has not because there were so many mistakes made uh, from uh, from forced eradication of, of farmers' crops to uh, to not training police officers and others who could who could uh, take part in law enforcement. The other problem is a lot of the people that we propped up in the government and install, installed are drug dealers themselves. In this current government, every echelon of the current government is involved in drug trafficking and almost and people who are clean inside the government are in danger. Those who do not help or look the other way. Uh, or protect drug traf- traffickers, are in danger. And I write one chapter is about these two uh, counter-narcotics agents who try to fight this drug trade but end up losing their lives for it.
0: What happened to them?
1: They were basically used as bait by the Taliban. Um, the Taliban wanted to send a message to the counter-narcotics police and say, don't come into our territory. We're going to kill you. You don't have any power here. Um, they, w- they were told by the counter narcotics police inside Afghanistan um, to identify a house where drug- a drug deal was going to occur in Helmand province. And both of these guys were from uh, were coming from Kabul. They were the best and w- m- uh, most well trained police officers, and they were undercover agents. Um, when they go to Helmand province, uh, they the, the person. Who was supposed to be helping them turned out to be a double agent and actually uh, was their enemy. And he turned them into the Taliban and they were executed. But it's a much more complicated story than that. Um, and it's in the book, um, It's an Opium Nation. And uh, it explains the complexities and the tribal links and the, the cross border issues that involve the drug trade. I think it's a really um, poignant. And telling story. Uh, In this one story about these two police agents, you'll learn a lot about the rest of the drug trade and how it works. And that's why I chose to um, uh, focus on these two men.
0: In your opinion, does the drug trade have a connection to international terrorism?
1: Absolutely, yes. I think al-Qaeda still does, and uh, will use uh, drug money to fund its own agenda and its uh, operations. Everybody is involved in the drug trade who has money and power and guns right now in Afghanistan and its bordering countries. It's a business.
0: Well, Fariba Nawa, author of Opium Nation, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment that has changed your life?
1: I think it's the moment that Daria asked me for help. That started me on a five-year journey to risk my life and write this book.
0: Is there more to the journey?
1: This book itself was not just a book an author wrote, but really a a lifetime's worth of work. It's a memoir as well as um, a reportage about the drug trade. And I think the fact that it's finally out and people are reading it is my Eureka moment. I can go out there and say, I made it out of this country alive and well, and in some ways a lot more whole than I was before I went in. I know who I am a lot more, and I feel more at peace with myself as an Afghan American.
0: And can you share with us what you would like to do with the rest of your one precious life?
1: I'd like to be there for my kids, make sure they're safe and protected, I want to continue writing books. I, want to, I don't plan on staying in the United States long term. My husband and I want to live abroad and, and work abroad in developing countries to be a part of a greater good. I, I am much more useful when I'm living in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Malaysia than I am here.
0: And finally, Fariba Nawa, is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners?
1: One of the books that I'm enjoying reading right now It's called Day of Honey, A Memoir of Food, Love, and War. And it's about this American woman married to a Lebanese journalist. And she goes to Iraq, and she discovers that people have to eat, even if they're at war. And it's a really beautiful story, a memoir, about the people of Iraq and, and their lives. It's funny, it's witty, and it's an
0: enjoyable read. Fariba Nawa, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Fariba Nawa is an Afghan-American journalist and the author of Opium Nation, Child Brides, Drug Lords, and One Woman's Journey Through Afghanistan. The book she recommends is Day of Honey, a Memoir of Food, Love, and More by Anya Adlo. There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curiousradiocurious.org, and the phone is 707. 4626541 Christina Honestead is the assistant producer and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.